this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Unsympathetic intellects slowly and surely drew their plans against us. It is Foreign Invader with Conrado Falco III. Welcome to Foreign Invader. My name is Conrado Falco III and this is the podcast about the pop culture that is corrupting American life. Every episode, we take a piece of culture that originated in not the United States of America and talk about its impact on our country and our lives. Today, we are talking about a Canadian invader. He's one of the biggest pop artists working today. I think you could make the case he's the most successful pop musician of the last decade. He's been certified as the highest digital sales artist in the U.S. He has the most top 10 hits on the Billboard Hot 100 the most charted songs of any artist ever on the Billboard Hot 100, the most simultaneous charted Hot 100 songs in a single week, the most continuous time of the Hot 100, and the most Hot 100 debuts in a single week. I am talking, of course, about the grassy actor Aubrey Graham, also known as Drake. And to talk about him, I have a very special guest. He is the host of the Skip Button podcast, a wonderful show covering some of the most Critically reviled artists in pop music. Episode topics include Coldplay, The Black Eyed Peas, and of course, Nickelback. I am talking about Ben Barzlai. Thank you for being on the show, Ben. Oh man, thank you so much for having me. That was a that was a great intro. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. I'm very excited to talk about Drake, but before we get into it, I'm going to ask you what I ask every single guest that comes on the show, which is, where are you from and where do you grow up? Uh, well, I'm uh, originally from the suburbs of New York City. I'm from Westchester, New York. That's where I was uh, born and raised. And I've sort of been uh, all over the New York State throughout my life. I, I studied upstate and now I live in Brooklyn. Um, uh, but yeah, my my family is, you know, my, my mom's side of the family is also uh, American, but my dad was born and raised in Israel. So I've sort of spent my life sort of back and forth. Um, and... Yeah, so this is this is an exciting show to be a part of. Wow. Okay. Great. It's been a while since we've had a native New Yorker in the show, <laughs> um, so I'm curious to know what you say about your neck of the woods because we've had people from Queens and from Long Island, so like everyone has like their own specific versions of New York stereotypes. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to hearing what do you think people from Westchester are like. Well, so uh, Westchester is sort of where, you know, I think the stereotype of Westchester is where like all of the rich, you know, the, all the privileged white Jewish people in New York live, which as a privileged white Jewish person is hard for me to argue. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, I the I think the one thing that people forget about Westchester is just how big it is. Um, it's it's too big to confine to one stereotype, even though there are plenty of people who fit that stereotype. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, they're, you know, I, I always say I'm from the same place as Jada Kiss and, and Styles P because they're from Yonkers, which is, you know, one town over me, which is not <laughs> similar to the town that I grew up in. But the, my point being that like Westchester has all different kinds of uh, uh, shapes and sizes and versions of it. But um, mm -hmm. I definitely am someone who fits the mold of whatever people think of when they think of Westchester. And what about Israel? You spent a lot of time in Israel as a, as a young man. Yeah, well, we would try to go there. You know, it, it's, been a, it's been a while since I've been there because of the pandemic. 
but you know we try to go there once a year my my all of my dad's family is still there and you know um it's always been important to him that you know we all maintain a relationship with each other so i'm still very mm -hmm. close to all my cousins you know an ocean away booked my ticket for august so gonna be oh. there soon um great but yeah it's it's definitely an amazing place to to visit it's incredibly you know beautiful country best food in the world <laughs> So if I was going to guess, I would say that probably your cousins in Israel think of you as the American one. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so so what what are some things that they would say about you or like that have have they ever like told you, oh, you're so American because you do this or that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that the the thing that I always hear the most is because because I didn't go to the army that I am, because, you know, there's, there's a draft in Israel, everybody, or most everybody is required to join the army when they're 18. But of course, joining the army can mean anything, you know, none of my, none of my cousins were in combat, they, you know, they would work as sort of, you know, communicators or, or doctors or things like that. Um, mm -hmm. But there's this sort of thing that they have that because Americans didn't go to the army, you know, they never, you know, they never really like worked hard, <laughs> which oh, <wow>. is, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, army and college are very different, but they, I think they both sort of serve the same purpose in terms of culture. It's still sort of like a rite of passage. You're going away from mm -hmm. home. You're, you're, you're learning things that you've never learned before. And in a context that you've never learned something before. Um, and again, like my, you know, my cousins, you know, it's not like they were, out in the trenches so right <laughs> they'll so, be so annoyed that i said that i said that <laughs> so with that in mind what would you say was the most american thing about your childhood is it that everything was handed to you in a silver platter compared to your israeli cousins i <laughs> it's so funny because it's it couldn't be further from the truth <laughs> the fact that they think that is so funny to me and they don't they, they it's, it's a joke to them but mm -hmm. but it's so funny to hear them talk about it. No, I think I, I did. I, I had a very sort of like stereotypical, um, like almost sitcom-y family. Like I, it was, I was in a suburb. It was me and an older sibling. My dad was a doctor. My mom was a lawyer, um, you know, went to a good school, um, uh, a very, very not diverse school, but a good school. Um, and you know, if, if those two things can ever be in tandem, but it was, it was a very, I mean, other than the fact that I, you know, had this father who spoke a foreign language and, you know, had a very thick accent and, you know, I, I, you know, was constantly taking off time at school so I could, you know, fly over and, and be with my family. Other than that, it was a very, very stereotypically American upbringing, I think. Mm -hmm. Now I want to talk about your podcast the skip button. I discovered Great. the show recently and I've already listened to almost every episode. I love it. <laughs> um, I'm so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I love the show. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm the host of the skip button. As you said, uh, it's a podcast all about the music that we love to hate. And basically what I do is every episode I pick, um, an artist or an album that sort of we as a society have sort of said is not worth our critical attention is either, actively bad or or doesn't deserve to be thought about or you know is sort of is sort of a joke 
And I do a deep dive on it. And I talk to friends. I talk to fans. I talk to people who hate them. I also talk to journalists and, and musicians. And I sort of try to survey everybody's take on why this music is bad or maybe why this music is good. And I try to, I try to, you know, present an objective sort of storyline about who this artist is, what this album is and, um, and see, you know, is the hate actually that valid? Does the hate stand up to a deep dive? And sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I feel sometimes like I'm an ideal listener for that show because I have such a weird relationship to certain kinds of music because my natural, I feel like my natural self just wants to go with the flow. Like let everybody listen to whatever they want to. I like a lot of supposedly very bad music, <laughs> uh, but also because I'm a bit of a snob, especially when it comes to like movies, because I, I like really into movies and I'm also like in music, I'm like, everybody listen to whatever you want. But in movies, I feel a little like, no, these are good movies and those are bad movies or whatever. So that comes over me when it comes to music, when I hear some, like, you know, maybe I liked, uh, I don't know, whatever, Green Day or Blink-182 when I was younger. And then someone tells me, no, that's actually bad. And I start to feel like, wait, what? It's bad? Like, what should right. I do? So your show is very validating in that front. Yeah. And it, and it, you know, there are so many opinions that you realize, oh, I actually have no idea why I have that opinion. Like I, nobody, nobody knows why Nickelback sucks. If, if someone says Nickelback sucks, ask them why and watch them stutter. Because <laughs> the thing that I've found about people who hate Nickelback is that everybody who hates Nickelback knows like three Nickelback songs and they right. love all three of those songs. <laughs> so <laughs> what, when we say that we hate Nickelback, what are we talking about? And, you know, the point of my show isn't necessarily to change your mind. It's to get you to ask the question, all right, I have this opinion about this music. Where does that opinion come from? And am I being honest with myself about why I hate it? Because mm -hmm. there's no bad, you know, like, for instance, I had a Chainsmokers episode where a lot of the episode was about how toxic they are and how they sort of mm. perpetuate a very unhealthy sort of chauvinistic culture in EDM music. Right. If you want to hate them for that, thumbs up from me. I think that's a great reason to hate somebody. <laughs> But if you're going to tell me that you hate them because the song Closer is bad, no, get out of here. That song's amazing. <laughs> it just happens to be made by not great people. Mm -hmm. That is a recurring theme, I think, of the show, of discovering how much of the hate is usually not with the music itself, but just the, the personalities behind it or like the, the whatever the culture is saying around those people uh, in other ways other than the work they do, which is, you know, it, it kind of happens in all parts of pop culture oh, sure. to a degree. Now I'm going to make a um, revelation that might be a little embarrassing, but I was listening to your show about Coldplay while I was riding my bike the other day. <laughs> and then I took a little bit of a rest and I was like, you know what? Listening to this has made me really kind of like want to listen to Coldplay. And then I put on Viva La Vida and started riding my bike to Viva La Vida. And it was great. I had a great time. I felt like I was alive. The wind was rustling yeah. in my face. <laughs> it was great. It's so, a great biking know. album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so i guess the lesson there is um don't feel self-conscious about what you like totally if you if you if folklore was your favorite album of 2020 <laughs> <laughs> yeah more on that later listeners you know a lot of girls be thinking my songs are about them this is not to get confused this one's for you baby you my everything 
you all I ever wanted We could do it real big, bigger than you ever done it You be up on everything, other hoes ain't never on it I want this forever, I swear I could spend whatever on it Cause she hold me down every time I hit her up When I get right, I promise that we gon' live it up She made me beg for it, till she give it up And I say the same thing every single time I say you the fucking best, you the fucking best You the fucking best, you the fucking best You the best I ever had Let's get into Drake, yeah? Yeah, let's. So, I am excited about this episode because I feel like it's going to be my own personal version of the skip button since <laughs> Drake is a hugely successful and very critically acclaimed artist and I kind of don't get it or I've never really paid too much attention to him. I don't think he's bad. But to keep the analogy of the podcast, I feel like if he comes on while I'm on shuffle, the chances that I skip are 50-50, mm. you know? So I'm looking forward putting you on the spot to tell me, why do you want to talk about Drake? Well, Drake is somebody, you know, Drake's been a part of my life for almost as long as hip-hop's been a part of my life. Uh, so my, you know, my idea of what hip-hop is and could be and can be and should be and shouldn't be is in in some ways you know wrapped up in drake <laughs> mm -hmm. because uh i i was a i was a huge fan of his of his early work when his debut album came out um thank me later it's all i listened to that that summer i was i was a camp counselor and i would go out and i would do my camp counselor thing and then i would go back to the bunk and i would listen to that album again <laughs> and mm -hmm. so he he was like a very formative artist for me and then now he's since then he's taken on so many different forms and have, has seemingly had so many different lives <laughs> and and character arcs that <laughs> you know It's uh, for me, it's not as simple as is he good or is he bad? Because there's just so much, so much to talk about with him. He, he's had, I mean, like you've said in your intro, he's had, he's been around for forever. He's broken all kinds of records. And with that comes some baggage and some mm -hmm. maybe not great music, in my opinion. Um, but he's sort of, sort of like, even, even if I have to look hard for it, he's sort of always in the fabric of my music taste, even if it's way in the background. Great. Okay, so that's great. That's fascinating since it's so different from my experience with Drake. So that makes me really excited. Why don't we start at the beginning when you first discovered Drake and that album that you listened to over and over again during the summer? Like what uh, um, pulled you towards it? What did you love about it? Well, so his debut album, when his debut album came out, it was that album was an incredibly hyped album because he had already been around for a while. He, you know, he first, you know, everybody knows he started out as an actor in Degrassi. And, and so the fact that he had started rapping, everybody sort of caught wind of that. And then the fact that he was good at rapping, everybody really latched mm -hmm. onto. And then his, you know, depending on how deep rooted you were in hip hop, there are different moments in his career that you could call breakout moments. But I think for a lot of people, it was best I ever had. Um, mm -hmm. and that was off of his mixtape so far gone. Uh, and that, that song was huge. <laughs> that, that song was inescapable. And that was the first, I think that was that, yeah, that must've been the first song I ever heard by Drake. And I think he had a, 
he had a sense of humor and he had a way of talking that I really related to. He was, he was funny in the way that my friends were funny and his cadence, he talked the way that I talked again, we're both, you know, suburban Jews. <laughs> we, um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, th- there was something, even though I couldn't relate to, you know, the, you know, the amount of sex that he was having, <laughs> you know, I couldn't relate to, you know, all of the, his lifestyle. I could relate, I could relate to how he was talking about his lifestyle. And then, mm. so that then culminated in his debut album, which is an album that I really want to do an episode of the skip button on because it was, it was kind of a letdown for a lot of people. Again, it was this very hyped album and sort of, sort of, it sort of received lukewarm responses. It didn't have huge hit singles off of it. Um, But that the sound of that album, which was mostly uh, by his producer 40 um, was so, there was something so melancholy and subdued about it in a way. I had never really heard a rap album like it, which is not to say that, rap albums like it didn't exist beforehand but Mm -hmm. to hear somebody who I related to uh talk about things in a way that I related to and over music that was new to me and in a way that was really just melancholy and was something that you could really sit with and sort of let as opposed to the rap that I had been used to listening to that I that I used to listen to and that I really liked that was mostly you know really upbeat you know late 2000s early 2010s it was like big synths and like heavy hitting drums on the radio which i love but to hear something that was sort of like watery and and woozy and Mm. um melodic um was something that i wasn't used to in my rap music and i it really really attracted me yeah and right so because what i've heard about drake so many times when people describe him what's different about him what distinguishes him from other rappers he is always described as the sensitive one or, you know, the, the, like you said, the melancholy one. And I I always thought that was interesting because um, for so long, I feel like toughness has been a really important element of hip hop. Right. Mm. And so what, what do you think makes him uh, or, or why do people say that he's a sensitive one? What does he bring into the music that gives him that description? Well, I will say that, you know, to call Drake more sensitive, than other rappers and to call hip-hop you know not a sensitive genre i think um is sort of uh at best an oversimplification mm-hmm. um you know rap has always been about struggle and it's always been about you know um uh overcoming adversity however mm-hmm. you mean to do that so there's always been an emotion to it i think that um i think because he was a rapper who is i would say disproportionately talking about love and disproportionately talking about um, uh, uh, w- where the topic of the songs was emotion. Usually, mm-hmm. I-, I would say that there aren't a lot of hip hop songs that are about, um, th- they're usually about something more surface level. And then the way that they talk about it is how the emotion comes out. Whereas he, whereas Drake would have songs about, you know, falling in love and and about and about you know having imposter syndrome and have you know all of these all of these things that uh, rappers talk about all the time but he sort of did it in such a blunt and direct way and in a way that was really quiet like the beats on thinking me later the beats are so quiet the drums barely register 
poster. And what you hear more than anything is just Drake's voice ranting about, you know, the feelings that he's overwhelmed with, um, hmm. which wasn't something that I'd heard before. And it was something that I just found myself, I had to keep listening to it. If you were to, uh, to the listeners now and to me, want to point to a song to say like this really represents Drake's sensitivity um what should I basically I'm asking you what should I play at this point in the podcast um I would say from that first album um uh I would say maybe the resistance which is a song that's sort of an archetypal early Drake song where it's again it's it's the woozy backgrounds it's the drums that, that are just barely there and it's him sort of um, ranting about the uh, way that fame has put a stress on his relationships. Um, it's sort of a, it's like, it it has all of the touchstones of an early Drake song. God, you got, mm-hmm. you got me back in high school, man. I'm looking at this track. <laughs> I'm looking at this track list and I'm, and I'm, and I, it's summer of 2010 again for me. Uh, I, I know you all too well. I said that we could kiss the past goodbye, but you weren't excited. Pretty much since then, he's been in the up and up in, in America. Um, so he had hit after hit, like, you know, what does he do after that? Take care. And then, you know, obviously later on, it's Hotline Bling and all those songs that we know. So would you would you say that was like kind of like his golden period where he could do nothing wrong or something like that? Yeah, well, Take Care was his second album. And that and, and he said he's basically said this as well, is that that was that was sort of his debut album for a lot of people, because Thank Me Later really didn't do what anybody wanted it to do. And he said that he felt like he didn't have enough time to make that album what he wanted it to be. And Take Care Mm -hmm. was sort of, Take Care was sort of his way of saying, this is what I meant to do. And that album was, I mean, that album won best rap, ooh, that album won best rap album of the year. And it had Marvin's Room and it had Headlines and it had Take Care. It had um, uh, the motto, which is where we got the word YOLO from. Mm-hmm. Um, so YOLO came from Canada. So take that <laughs> Americans. Uh, and it had, it had just, it was sort of a tour de force. It had, he, he was rapping ferociously. He was, he was crooning. He was singing. He was, he struck a balance more so than in thank me later of, mm-hmm. um, that raw emotionality that I was talking about. And also the, you know, fun grittiness that, that era of hip hop was kind of known for. Um, it was sort of, it was sort of thank me later, but, but, and, but then some, like it, it was mm-hmm. thank me later plus so much more. And since then 
he hasn't really put out an unsuccessful album. Now, the singing, I think, is kind of essential to Drake's persona, right? I feel like that's something that maybe the first time that I saw a rapper singing, I mean, Lauren Hill did it, but I yeah. that, I was too young for that to mm. have noticed. But when Kanye did the 808 and Heartbreaks, mm. right? And that was a huge thing of like oh it's so different from anything he's done before totally. and then he started to incorporate both rapping and singing and i feel like drake kind of takes that to a to a different level of like like you said it's like kanye's singing was kind of weird and warped but drake's is really crooning like you described it it's he's like singing totally and i and i think that drake <laughs> drake as a singer is a really interesting topic to me because he he starts out and he, he's not, he's not, he's a good singer. I don't think that if I didn't know who he was and I saw him like singing on the streets, I'd be like, oh right. man, this guy's an amazing singer. But he has a really, um, he has, he, he has a, he has a good voice and he knows what to do with it. And, mm -hmm. and I will say that his singing, you know, if you, if you sort of watch the history of him singing live, he get he's, he gets better and better at it. And now he's, now he's a pretty good singer. Um, but back in that early era, it was sort of, it was sort of mixed in a way that, you know, you couldn't really tell if he was good um, because it was, there was some auto tune and there was some, you know, mixing, but he had a really, he had a, he had a really pleasant voice. And I think, I, and I think you're right. I think that 808s and Heartbreaks really paved the way for someone like Drake to be like, okay, I'm going to do that, but I'm actually going to sing. I'm actually, it's not going to be drenched in auto tune. It's going to be, it's going to be like listening to your favorite R&B artist, except I'm a rapper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it really begins something that I think has really uh, ramped up in recent years of like totally blending genres in a way that even further from what it already was. I feel like now I listen to a song that people say, this is a pop song, this is a hip hop song, this is an R&B, even a country song. And I'm like, these all sound the same. It's the same genre. <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. And I think that... Um... Drake, my thing about Drake is that I think he, more than anything else, he's a songwriter. I think that that is his true, that is his true skill that has catapulted him to the top of the charts. The difference between him and, uh, you know, another person's favorite songwriter is that rather than, you know, guitars and melodies, it's rapping and it's 808 drums. And mm. that it, he, he's, he has the heart and the brain of a songwriter, but the um, the artillery, the skill set of a rapper. And mm. because of that, no one's really ever been sure how to categorize him. And that's still, right. I mean, his most recent hit was called Pop Star. You know, like it's still it's still a conversation that's being had around Drake. Is is he is he a, is he a rap star? Is he a pop star? Is he R and B? Is he hip hop? Is he pop? Um, it's a and I don't think it's a conversation that he wants to stop. I think he wants to confound people. Definitely, it reminds me of something that I read about Prince when he was coming up in the '80s, of signing with Warner Brothers but not wanting to be under the R&B label because he wanted to be presented as pop so that mm. he would be at the center of the music conversation, that he wouldn't be relegated to a specific genre. And I feel like that's kind of what you. That's kind of why you would want to do something like that, because I feel like no artist wants to be pigeonholed and you want to be able to, you know, move freely into whatever interests you at the moment. 
Yeah. And, and Drake has always been an artist who says, uh, I'm, I'm good at this, so I'm going to do it. And I don't care if it's like, quote unquote, not hip hop. I'm, I'm going to do it because I know that I'm good at it. And that's all that matters. So what are some of the his most um, fun experimentations? He obviously did a lot of kind of uh, dance hall inspired music, inspired by like Caribbean beats. Like um, what's that one that was really big? One Dance, which is a great song. Yeah. And like even Hotline Bling, I would say, has that influence. Yeah, well, I, I remember uh, I, I was just listening in preparation for this. I was just listening to the song Take Care, which is the mm-hmm. um, title track from his second album. And that was a weird song because that had so many different elements to it. It was it was a rap song, but it had um, it had a dance hall vibe, but it was a sample of a Jamie XX song that itself was a remix of a Jill Scott Heron song. And so the, the root trying to like trace the roots of that song is like, you know, a snake mm-hmm. trying to eat its own tail or whatever. It's, it, it's hard to tell where one genre ends and the other begins, but it's, but at the same time, it's a pretty simple song. It's, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It has a Rihanna feature. It has, you know, nice it's like it has like a nice club beat to it it's a very accessible song but then when you try to break down what it is it's like wait what what am i what am i listening to since we are in kind of such a height period for Drake, do you want to give us like, if gun to your head, like what would you say is like an example of like Drake at his best? Like, you know, if some, if you want to impress someone with Drake's song. Um, that's a, well, my favorite album of his is his third album, which was nothing was the same. Um, so my mind immediately goes to that album. And I think that, um wow i think that tuscan leather is a song that people point to a lot because that was the first song off of his album nothing was the same and drake had been known and i think still is known for his album openers which are these really ferocious it's where he's rapping the best but it's also they're also sort of like thesis statements of like here's where i am in my career right now here's where I think it's going to go after you listen to this album, basically. (laughs) And (laughs) Tuscan Leather, I think, is um, the one that people point to the most of like, um, of proof that Drake is one of the, one of the best rappers in the game. I I remember that it wasn't a single, it it wasn't, it didn't chart, I think. But I think that 
even Drake talks about that song as being really special because he was like, it was it was a statement. It was like, this is I'm I'm here and I'm and I'm not going anywhere. And this and this is this is how I'm starting the album. So just hold on because it's gonna be a wild ride. Um and so I think that song is sort of is a great statement piece by him. Sitting Gucci roll like they say up at UNLV. Young rebel, young money, nothing you could tell me. Paperwork taking too long, maybe they don't understand me. I compromise if I have to, I gotta stay with the family. Not even talking to Nikki, communication is breaking. I dropped the ball on some personal shit, I need to embrace it. I'm honest, I make mistakes, I be the second to admit it. Think that's why I need it in my life to check me when I'm tripping. On a mission trying to shift the culture, tell me who dissing. I got some things that I hit the culprit. Them strep throat flows, some shit to stop all of the talking, all of the talking. Got one reply for all of your comments. Fuck what you think, I'm too busy, that's why you leave a message. Born a perfectionist, guess that makes me a bit obsessive. That shit I heard from you lately really relieves some pressure. Like, AB, I got your CD, you get an E for effort. I piece letters together and get to talking reckless. I'll change like credentials, you know you see the necklace. My life's a completed checklist. I'm tired of hearing about who you checking for now. Just give it time, we'll see you still around a decade from now. That's real. The reason we're talking about Drake is because he's from Canada. Right. Do we think like there's anything particularly Canadian about Drake? <laughs> that's a that's a good question and and you know, I, I it, it's it's one of the reasons that I was kind of nervous to come on the show is because um you know, Drake is a black Canadian and I'm neither of those things and and I don't I I don't want to put my foot in my mouth um about how he expresses that part of his identity mm -hmm. um but from the outside looking in what i think is interesting about drake is that i think like a lot of rappers he started his career sort of imitating other people i, th I think every rapper in the world has admitted that they've done this too when i was mm -hmm. coming up i tried to sound like eminem i was trying to sound like jay-z blah 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 mm -hmm. and drake you know drake was trying to sound like jay-z drake was trying to sound like Wayne, and i think that um because of that keep in mind nobody nobody has ever been famous in hip-hop from canada before that that wasn't a, a thing there were there were artists that were really big and respected in canada like cardinal official but there there was never you know it wasn't a thing for a huge rapper to be canadian and yeah so i think understandably he tried to not hide it but sort of not address it <laughs> um he, he he said he would say that he's from canada he wouldn't hide the fact that he was from canada but he wouldn't let it influence his music he wanted mm -hmm. to be like a, a traditional hip-hop artist and i think that it's only in it's only kind of in recent years and again i i want to reiterate he hasn't he never hid the fact that he's from canada he has always been so sure to put toronto on the map and to and to um pay homage to toronto um, through his actions and through his lyrics, but I think it's only in the past couple years that he's sort of um, he started using like Black Canadian slang and he started, you know, experimenting with the accents of you know, you know, Black Toronto and and you know, name checking places and things like that. And you know, uh, Toronto has 
you know, a big dance hall movement that he, he I think has really influenced his dance hall music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's been interesting to watch. I'm really curious if your listeners want to school me on everything that I just said, because I would be really down to learn. Um, but I think it's only once he became just an inescapable pop star that he really started to wear his uh, Canadianness on his sleeve and in his music. Last episode of the show, I had Justin DeClue on, who is a filmmaker and film critic from Canada. Okay. He lives in Toronto. And he was talking about Canada and how there's this kind of mentality there that in order to be big, you have to come to America, right? Like they have like this kind of little brother syndrome in which everything is like, so I think what you're saying to makes total sense that Drake trying to break through at, at the beginning, especially had to kind of cater to American sensibilities can had to make it big here and kind of like plant his foot and make sure that he had enough territory and enough success in order to start talking about Canada and start to doing all the things that interested him. Now, something interesting, funny, I don't know, that I found on Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt, uh-huh. but I kind of want to deconstruct this, is that Wikipedia says that he's part of something called the Canadian Invasion of Pop Music. And they cite artists like The Weeknd, Justin Bieber, Shawn Mendes. Uh, do you see any similarities between these artists other than the fact that they're Canadian? Uh, well, I think that... I think that Drake has, I think that if you're a Canadian rapper, Drake is sort of, you know, your, your North star. And Mm -hmm. so I think that if you listen to a lot of, especially, you know, five years ago or so, if you were listening to um, Canadian hip hop, people like Tory Lanez and Jazz Cartier, they were, there was a sense that they were trying to be Drake. They had those, you know, they had those melodic songs that had like woozy beats. Um, but um, but now, I mean, but now Canada is is now it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. There's there's nothing stopping Canadians from being huge pop stars. As you said, there's so Justin Bieber, you know, Shawn Mendes, uh, The Weeknd, all these people. I think that um, I, I, I don't know if there's anything that connects Drake and Shawn Mendes musically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, but I think the difference is, is that I don't, I don't think that if a singer songwriter was coming up back then, that being Canadian would have been sort of, a, a a burden, but I think for Drake, it really was Drake was, Drake was, mm. was biracial. He was Jewish. He was an actor. He was Canadian. There were so many things that he was, that wasn't supposed to make for a big hip hop star. Um, and so I think very understandably as a, you know, someone in his early twenties, who's probably still figuring himself out. He said, you know what, let me, let me not cause too much of a stir. Let me not do anything too wild. Let me sort of hold my cards close to the chest and, and sort of do what I'm good at and not make a big fuss about, you know, (laughs) me being all of these things. Um, and then, you know, he went on to prove that none of that really matters so your relationship with drake it was all love until when when did it start to get complicated i was i was trying to figure out the answer to this question um i'm not sure i think the first time 
that I was disappointed by Drake. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say this because this is not an opinion that I think has held up over time. Um, the first time I was sort of disappointed in Drake was when Started from the Bottom came out, mm. um, which was off of his Wait, third Wait, isn't that... Yeah, isn't that from your favorite album? I was gonna say it's from it's from his third album, which I think is his best album, um, and it was it was the first single from that album, um, and it had it had this sound that was it was sort of a trap beat. It had this sort of lazy, sort of casual flow to it. All things that I didn't associate Drake with, and all things that I was sort of at the time bored of in my head like I think one of the reasons that I was attracted to Drake at first as an artist is because he wasn't doing any of those things um and I and like now you know that song came out what eight years ago and now if you put it on like I'll get down like now I have no problem with that song but at the time it's sort of it I think it's sort of um foreshadowed Drake's sort of chameleon nature where he he sort of to some people he, he hops on bandwagons to people who are more forgiving for him. He's sort of this um, Renaissance chameleon man. Um, and that's, I think, sort of been the push and pull between Drake haters and Drake fans is whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. And for me, that that's what kind of started it off was him saying, all right, this sound is really huge. I'm going to just, you know, I'm just going to top the Billboard charts with this song. And Again, I, I don't I don't really stand by this opinion, but at, at the time I was like, this is easy. This is cheap. Mm. Um, Interesting. My impression is that around maybe 2015 or 2016, he was really kind of riding high in terms of, of commercial success. And uh, the, the stuff that he started to do after that, so stuff like, um, well, he did this album Views, and then he has some... Um, Better Life and Scorpion in particular, I feel like there's much more of a pushback against it. Mm. Um, he kind of becomes this guy who brings out these albums, these um, mixtapes with like, I don't know, 20 tracks in them. And so he is all over the Hot 100 chart. He All of his songs are charting and he has so many hits and he sells everything. And he becomes kind of like a this big kind of overdog figure that that you know he goes from the underdog from Canada to dominating pop music and so people start to uh say kind of what you're saying it, I heard a lot doing some research about him being lazy or about him kind of repetitive um how do you feel about that that more recent section of his career well I I think that part of it is also you know as I was sort of referencing earlier, he started doing things like, you know, singing with accents and, and making more dancehall music. Um, and, you know, that album Views came out in 2016 and that had one dance, which was, you know, uh, huge. I, I mean, maybe maybe one of his biggest songs of all time. And I hate that album. I I, I really didn't like Views because I think that it, it just, it, I thought the rapping was less convincing and the dancehall music what it was it wasn't that it was bad it's that nobody knew where it was coming from at the time because I think they didn't know Canadian music I, I they didn't understand sort of the relationship that like Canada and sort of the birthplaces of dancehall have and they didn't understand why 
he was singing accents. I think that really put people off, um, which, you know, I, I, you know, I won't speak on if that's like appropriate or not, but I, I, I definitely understand both sides of that argument. And I think people, I think people were just confused. Um, and I think the more that he's done that, the more people understand it. Um, but I think it was that mixed with the fact that he had never been more successful. He was topping the charts all the time. And so the people just kept seeing his name more and more. And the more that people saw his name, the more people were like, what, what is, what is this? Like, what is he trying to do? Um, I actually just, <laughs> I, I'm on Apple music now and I just pulled up Scorpion, um, which is his most recent um, official album. And the liner notes of that, uh, of that album read, I hate when Drake raps, Drake sings too much. Drake is a pop star. Drake doesn't even write his own songs. Drake took an L. Drake didn't start from the bottom. Drake is finished. I like Drake's older stuff. Drake makes music for girls. Drake Drake thinks he's Jamaican. Drake is an actor. Drake changed. Anybody else over Drake. And so it just, it chronicles all of the reasons that people hate him at that point. Um, and he has a line, he has a line in a song. This wasn't from an album. I think this was like a one-off called Draft Day, which is one of my favorite Drake songs. It's one of his best some of his best rapping is on that song. And he says, um, can I curse on this show? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, go to town. He, he has a line where he goes, that boy know he the shit. That boy singing on every song when he know he can spit. And uh -huh. I love that line because it is, when you look at it that way, it is sort of a flex. He's like, I'm the best rapper in the world, but but I don't feel like rapping. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it that way, there is some something sort of um, inspiring about that. <laughs> so I read a lot of reviews for Scorpion in particular. That's mm. his most recent uh, official album, like you said. And a lot of it gave me the impression that, um, that yeah, that kind of like what you were getting at with the liner notes, that something had been had changed in his in the perception people had of Drake. And now that he was such a big star, that he was getting like a little bit more either defensive or cautious about certain stuff. Apparently he had had a son that people didn't know about before that album. So the, a lot of the reviews talk a lot about that, but also about how he would usually really write songs about whatever it is that was going in his personal life. So he seemed like a quite a transparent artist. And then with the son situation, it was a little too close to home. So he would he wasn't really rapping about it he wasn't singing about it and I guess that's kind of that impression of like when you become such a big artist you start to get guarded or like you know suddenly you're not on the offense anymore you have to start playing defense mm -hmm. something like that totally and I you know Drake is, has always been such a and and again it's been something that some people love about him some people hate about him he's always he's always been a very calculated artist he you know he plays he plays chess he doesn't play checkers he <laughs> he knows his next movie knows what he wants to do and how he wants to do it and um that sometimes goes out the window when you accidentally you know impregnate somebody <laughs> um, right and so uh i think yeah that was i mean that was that was such big news. The The biggest artist in the world had a, a one-year-old son and nobody knew. Mm -hmm. And I think that everyone was so, everyone was so surprised that they didn't know. 
like how is it possible with how insane people are on social media and in and in in regular media and how insane paparazzi can be how is it Mm -hmm. humanly possible that drake had a son and we didn't know um which i mean kudos to him i don't know i can't imagine (laughs) having to keep that secret um but he has that there's the because what happened was he got into a rap beef with Pusha T. Pusha T outed the fact that he had a son. And when I heard the Pusha T diss, I couldn't tell if it was a joke. I was like, did Pusha T just say Drake has a son? No, that's that's a right. joke. And everyone was sort of like, Drake, do you have a son? Like everyone was like, wait, 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 is this really a thing? And then he had a um, and then on his album Scorpion, I think it's the song Emotionless, he basically says yes i have a son and he Mm. says he has the line which now is like i think one of the most quoted lines from that album which was i wasn't hiding i wasn't hiding my kid from the world i was hiding the world from my kid um in other words it's not that i was ashamed or like didn't you know want people to know it was that people are crazy and that can affect people and i didn't want it to affect my son um uh and then that sort of became I think definitely uh, not planned by Drake. That sort of became the story of that album, as opposed to, you know, you know, it's a really long album and he talks about a lot of things on that album, but the main headline is, you know, Drake has a son. It's official. Right. He seems to be taking a bit of a, I don't know. I feel like he's not at the center of the conversation right at this moment when we're recording, but what would you say that he's in, on, in his career right now, in your opinion? I think that where he is in his career right now is he, um, I, I don't think that he thinks he's finished. Um, you know, he has an album reportedly coming out, I think next month or in mm. June, uh, sometime this summer. Um, and, you know, he, he had, I, I think you're right. He's not, he's not a huge part of the conversation, but part of that is because he hasn't put an album out in like three years. Uh, right. But, you know, he had, he had Pop Star with DJ Khaled, and that was huge. He had Laugh Now, Cry Later, which is huge. And I think what's interesting with Drake now is that Drake has always been um, known, again, some people hate it, some people like it, for um, features, for putting artists on. You know, he he put mm. The Weeknd on, he put Migos on by, you know, hopping on tracks with them. And now, you know, with songs like, for instance, Laugh Now, Laugh Now Cry Later with Lil Durk, What's interesting about where he is in his career now is that I think that that was as beneficial to him as it was for Lil Durk, because oh. I think now I think now Drake is at an age not because he fell off or because he's not you know good anymore, but just because you know that's how time works. I think he's now at an age where he sort of he sort of has to fight to maintain his top spot, not to maintain his top spot to but to get attention. To, mm-hmm. you know, to hold attention in the world of hip hop, which is, you know, a young man's game. He has to, you know, he, you know, just like any exercise, the older you get, the more, you know, the more stretching you have to do, the more work you have to put in. Yeah. And I, and I think that now Drake is at an age where he's, he's, he, I think he's still going to be relevant for a very long time. I think he's going to keep putting music out that is going to chart and that we're going to care about and that is going to get Grammy nominations and all of that. Mm-hmm. I think now though, he's sort of entering his era as sort of an elder statesman of hip hop rather than, you know, what's hot right now. 
And that's a tough place to be as a pop artist. I feel like th- th- that happens when you get to a certain point because for me personally, I feel like pop music is so benefits from being very personal and very relatable to the people who are listening to. So the more famous you get, the more fame and money you have, the more different your life is from everyone else who's listening to your music. And the more, I mean, I don't know. I feel like some of the extreme examples is something like YouTube, which you talk about in the skip mm-hmm. button of how, you know, Bono is, is a millionaire and, and he writes songs about stuff that people are like, what are you even talking about? Right. Your songs <laughs> make no sense. Um, so that must be kind of a weird place to be, especially for, I feel like for a hip hop artist, that must be especially tough because hip hop, like you said, is so much about, uh, you know, being an underdog, the struggle and being very vulnerable and personal and tough at the same time. And, you know, yeah, no, no, it's interesting. And, and I think that 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 is something that I think every successful rapper has dealt with is because when they start out, they have they don't always have anything. And they mm-hmm. and that's what they rap about, and people fall in love with them for it, and then they have everything. And now, what do they rap about? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that you know the, there are counter examples to that where you have someone like Jay Z, whose whose recent album Four Forty Four is very much about him being a father and about reflecting on his life and about uh, the success that he's had, uh, and it's it's honest and it's emotional and it's again kind of like what i said about drake i can't relate to any of the things that he's talking about but i can relate to the emotionality of it and i can relate to the inner turmoil of it um and jay i mean jay-z is the most jay-z is the most unrelatable person in the world like he's (laughs) right nobody nobody could possibly I I can't I'm not creative enough to imagine what it would be like to be him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. he was able to very late in his career, way past um way past his prime in terms of his pop culture relevance, but still was able to make an album that made everybody sort of stop what they were doing and listen because A, it was it was very good, it was very well made, but it was also very honest. I think that it was so noteworthy to see an artist who's been so who's who's been noteworthy for at that point probably like 20 years Mm -hmm. shed shed a layer and show a side to him that we haven't seen before right and bringing it back to drake i think that that i think that drake has that capacity too i think that there are sides to drake we haven't seen yet i think that there Mm -hmm. are aspects to his artistry and to his life that you know we still have to learn about you know um, and I don't think that anyone's better equipped to handle that than Drake, because again, Drake is a planner. Drake is, Drake is very thoughtful about how he puts his projects together. And so even though I think he's, he is slightly past his prime in terms of pop culture relevance, he, we're going to be hearing about him and caring about his music for, I think, a, a, a couple more albums, at least. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, do you have any kind of expectations or hopes for the next album are you or are you just waiting to be surprised or what do you think about that man i i don't know i i don't like the title which is certified lover boy but i actually oh have always drake's album titles and his album covers i don't think he has a single good one i i've, <laughs> I've had this conversation with before 
I, all of his album covers are so whack to me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you know, don't judge a book by its cover because a lot of those albums are really good. I don't know. I'm, I, I think that I, I think that we're going to keep seeing new um, layers to his musicality. And I think that some of it might be good and some of it might not be. <laughs> well, after having this conversation, I'm really excited to see where he goes next. Me too. Well, I think that pretty much uh, wraps it up. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, man, this was great. Thank you so much for uh, letting me ramble. <laughs> Would you like to say anything to the listeners in terms of where they can find you and your work on the internet, anything like that? Uh, yeah, sure. I uh, am on, in, well, first of all, go listen to the Skip Button anywhere you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram, which is uh, skip, at Skip Button Podcast. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm uh, at bars near me, B-A-R-Z near me. Um, but if all of that is too much to remember, just go to www.theskipbun.com and you'll see all of my social media accounts and all of my episodes and all of my writing there. Mm -hmm. Including a really interesting piece about Taylor Swift, <laughs> which the listeners might be about to li listen a little bit more about that in a few minutes. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Ben, for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you. Oh man, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. You used to call me on my You used to, you used to And that's our show. Thanks again to Ben Barzilai for coming on to talk about Drake. If you enjoyed this episode, I have a mission for you. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a few seconds. You can go give us five stars and leave a funny comment. It will help us find more listeners and it will be really really appreciated it will make a difference thanks again for listening coming up on this podcast feed well next time we do for an invader we'll be talking about prolific south korean director and new york film festival favorite hong sang soo and next week on movie marriage sachta and i will be talking about the one and only shrek that's right so check that out in the meantime, I'll leave you with more Drake and then more Ben Barsley. Call me on my cell phone. Late night when you need my love. I know when that hotline bling. That can only mean one thing. I know when that hotline bling. That can only mean one thing. Ever since I left the city, you, 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 you and me, we just don't get along. You made me feel like I did you wrong. Going places where you don't belong. Ever since I left the city. So, Ben, through the skip button, you've made a bit of a reputation, not only for covering some of the most critically reviled and maligned pop okay. artists like Nickelback or Phil Collins, but... Also for stumping for them and defending them a little bit. So, your favorite album of 2020, though, I can hardly think of a bigger overdog than Taylor Swift's Folklore. So, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, I and that that is sort of what I struggled with when I was making my list. Is when I started making my list of my favorite albums of 2020, I 
I really didn't think that Taylor Swift was going to end up on that list. I think usually when people make those lists, they're like, well, I know what number one is. I know, you know, they sort of have a sense, but I really, I really didn't think she was going to get on it. And then I I wasn't even sure she was going to make the list, let alone top it. And then as I was making my list, I just found she just like slowly started creeping up the ladder. And I was like, oh God, it was my favorite album folklore. And then I, (laughs) I, it was between her and the Avalanches who released an amazing album at the end of 2020 called We Will Always Love You. Um, And I, I was like, there's no way she's stopping that album. But then I, and I wrote about it. If you, if you go to my website, I wrote this really long article explaining why she ended up topping that list and it just came down to I, I i was i engaged with this album more than any other album this year or last year and the more that i engaged with it the more that i found myself appreciating it and finding new things to love and and more nuances which is certainly true about the avalanches album there's that's a very rich album but um yeah there was just something when i look back at 2020 i think the album that I will remember the most about that year is folklore. And so for that reason alone, it, I very begrudgingly put it at the top of my list. <laughs> yeah, um, I read that article on your website and I'm going to link to it so that the people listening can check awesome. it out too. I thought it was so, um, it was kind of funny to to see you, you know, feel like you had to um, explain yourself, you know? Um, y- because you were going with such a consensus pick, I guess. Yeah, but, and um, half of the article, the second half of the article is talking about why I felt so bad about doing it, why I was so slow to doing it, and how, you know, we should we should all just, you know, cherish the music that we love and not be worried about, you know, if it's, if it's the cool thing to put on the top of your list. Mm-hmm. But it's hard when you're in that position and you feel like, you feel embarrassed about something. So it's so much easier said than done to like be honest about what music, you know, really matters to you. Right. So I have a, a, a rich history with Taylor Swift because in my last year of college, uh, my senior thesis project was a play basically about <laughs> her. Um, it was called You Belong With Me, The Life and Death of Taylor Swift. And it was kind of like, <laughs> first it was a bit of a satire about um, you know, pop music uh-huh. and Hollywood and whatnot. And then it became kind of like a futuristic show about a world in which Taylor Swift was seen as a kind of deity from the past. And this was around 1989 mm-hmm. era for Taylor Swift. So it was the height not of her the fame. Year, so the it was album all about... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not that old. <laughs> I was not in college in 1989. Um, but yeah, it was, she was at the top of her game and, I and it started the idea for the show started as, as a bit of a joke, but the more I listened to her music and the more research I did, the more I became fascinated by her and, and her music, and it made me appreciate it in a different way. I feel like maybe your um, history with folklore is a little similar to that of like re-listening to the album until it it started to mean something to you. Yeah, Taylor Swift has always been somebody. You know, I've never been a diehard fan. Uh, she's somebody that I, you know, I, I'm somebody who thinks a lot about pop music and who thinks a lot about mainstream culture. And you can't, you can't care about pop culture without caring about Taylor Swift. You know what I mean? And so she's somebody who I've always followed. Um, and so when I first started really diving into folklore, it was just because 
she's the most influential person in pop culture or one of the most influential people in pop culture. I should figure out what this album is all about. And then I slowly transitioned in a way that wasn't even perceptible to me to just being interested in the album, to actively really loving it and and really finding a lot to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say something that has gotten me in trouble in the past, (laughs) which is that I have listened to folklore, but I do not share in the love that so many people around me feel about her, about the album, rather. Um, I like Taylor Swift, um, but this uh, last album and the other one, Evermore, that she also released last year, they felt a little bit snoozy (laughs) to me. Like, every time I put them on, I kind of start thinking about something else and, and I don't focus on them, you know? So, but a lot of people have told me that they love it and that maybe I should re-listen to it and I've tried, but maybe you will be the one who finally tells me how should I listen to folklore so that I love it. Well, I think that, that you know, that because I've, I've heard that before where, you know, there are some people who when they listen to Taylor Swift's albums, they want to hear, um, you know, they want to hear Shake It Off. They want to hear Bad Blood, which are which are great songs. Um, but there, there are other people who the reason they fell in love with Taylor Swift is because of the more subdued songs, the more um, emotional songs, the more sort of fantastical songs, you know, uh, 15 or Teardrops on My Guitar. Um, And Folklore is her really leaning into that that side of her uh, songwriting. It's not really about um, her being, you know, a pop star, even though she is still very much a pop star. It's more about, you know, how how vivid of a world can I create? How, you know, how um, vivid of a dreamscape can I, can I sort of conjure hmm. in this world? And that was the thing. Cause I, cause I also, you know, it does, I don't, it's not a very well sequenced album, I think. Um, oh. And I think that there are moments where they're sort of, there, it sort of loses its momentum. It sort of, it sort of can lose you and it can't, I, you are not the first person to tell me that they thought it was a boring album. But I think that um, hmm. if you dive into the songs individually, you sort of realize what she's doing. You sort of realize what she's trying to accomplish, and and you know again, it's you know it was released in quarantine. It it it's a very subdued album. It's a really good album to sort of just like sit and be patient with, right. and 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 sort of you know dim the lights down and sort of really dive into the world rather than dance to it. But there are some people who don't mm-hmm. want. There are some people who would rather listen to you know Dua Lipa's album, which is my third right. favorite album of the year <laughs> um and um the quarantine album that that it's a totally different vibe but also a very quarantine-ish vibe for me was the fiona apple album mm. the fetch the bolt cutters right and that is kind of like uh almost creepy unsettling thing to listen in quarantine i feel like but also it felt kind of cathartic you know to go through all those emotions absolutely i think the fact that that album was so well suited for the quarantine but was completely created outside of the quarantine that she that entire album was made before the quarantine started the fact that she was able to make something that was so fitting but also wasn't didn't make you think about it too much because it wasn't meant for that it wasn't meant to be compared to the quarantine it just happened to fit Mm -hmm. so perfectly with what we were all feeling that album was really that couldn't have come at a better time totally and Right. So to to come back and finish with mm-hmm. folklore, what I'm getting from what you're saying is I think something that you've talked about in the skip button before, which is this idea of so many of these artists that people don't like, it comes down to like the lyrics 
of their songs. And also, you make, if I remember correctly, you've made a difference between people who listen to music and listen, really listen to the lyrics, and then people who kind of like just go along with the, I don't know, the rhythm and the sounds. And I feel like I'm in that latter category. Mm. So maybe that's what I'm missing with folklore, which is kind of my history with Taylor, because when it was when I first started listening more closely to her lyrics in order to write a play about her that I started to really respect her. And I think she's a great songwriter. Mm. And a lot of it doesn't come through until you really pay attention to what she's writing. About. Yeah, she's 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 a craftsperson. She's she's a very crafty songwriter in ways that aren't completely obvious when you first hear it. But then when you start noticing how consistent she is and, you know, all of the things that she's able to do in just, you know, a verse and a chorus, you realize, oh, be because, you know, the, the key of a good, you know, craftsperson is that you shouldn't be able to tell how hard they're working. And you can't, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't look like Taylor's working very hard, but she actually is, she actually is. It, it's, it's very, it, it can be very nuanced songwriting. It also can be dumb and annoying and corny at times. I don't think she has a perfect catalog, but when when she's no. <laughs> when she's strong, she's she's strong, I think. Yeah, I don't think even the biggest Taylor fan will have to admit that she has a couple of clunkers in there. And I write in the article, there are songs on folklore that I really don't like. There is there are songs that mm -hmm. I that I can't wait to skip over, but but um the where she's strong, I think she's really strong. What are some of your favorites on folklore? Um, I, ooh, my favorite, my favorite song has shifted a lot. Um, I actually haven't listened to the album in, in a couple of months now, but my favorite, the song that has stayed with me the most is the song Seven. I find that song mm. to be so like pure and emotional um, and sweet. And usually when Taylor's sweet, she's too, she's like sickly sweet. She's like saccharine, like candy. Mm. But this was just yeah. so, um, I found that song so endearing. And I've, I've listened to that song a lot. <laughs> I think that's mm -hmm. probably my favorite song. I also love that Bon Iver duet, Exile. Oh, yeah. That's really good, too. I like that. And I like that song, Betty. Oh, Betty's great. Well, Betty's great because I, it's sort of a, that song's sort of like a full circle moment in her career. Because it it sounds like sort of the, and, and I write about this in the article about how, you know, it's sort of the same sort of, country pop like love drunk teen tinged love song um but but written from the perspective of where she is now which is you know a, a mm -hmm. woman in her 30 somethings looking back on you know what high school love is like yeah which was also something interesting about the this new fearless taylor's version of mm. fearless that she re-recorded and, and released that i didn't expect to be much of a much of interest because I thought, well, she's just re-recording her songs. But listening to her like sing those songs as a more mature woman was it's kind of interesting. It 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 sounds different. Some of them, like you can feel a world weariness to some of them. Yeah, you you can. It, it's sort of an interesting thought experiment because it's sort of even though the lyrics are the same, it almost feels like she's singing in the past tense instead of the present tense on the new album. Yeah, because you can feel. You know, you can sort of feel her looking back, which in some cases I think is a good thing. And in other cases, I think is sort of I'd rather listen to the original for that reason. Um, mm. Like, I don't I don't want to hear a wise person sing um, love story. I want to I want to hear I want to hear a naive young girl <laughs> sing that song. You know what I mean? It like hits yeah. a little differently. <laughs> Yeah, it totally does. And that's the and that's also what made me 
feel a little dubious about the album is because that was the single that they put out before they released the album. And I was like, oh, this is not like, I don't know about this. But then some of the other songs do sound kind of at least interesting now. Yeah, no, her voice. I, I definitely it. Yeah, it's interesting. That that's that's I think the best word for it. I, I wouldn't say that it's great or terrible or blah, blah, blah. But it's it's interesting. It's interesting to hear the difference that, you know, however many years I don't I don't even like 15 years or something can make. Yeah, it, it really is. 